The other day, I uh, came home from the golf course, and uh, my wife said, hey, how come you haven't been playing golf with Chris any longer? And um, I asked her a question. I said, would you like to spend roughly four hours with someone who cusses every time they make a shot, throws their putter every time they miss a putt, always lies and cheats on the scorecard, and, and just is not any fun to be around when they get so upset over a silly game of golf. And she said, no, I wouldn't want to do that. And I said, neither does Chris. <laughs> you know, I told the first service you guys would love that joke more than uh, they did down there. But uh, good morning, everyone. Now, who loves it when God wakes you up in the middle of the night. Has God ever done that to you? He's done it to me this past week, and I hate when he does that, okay? So he woke me up on 1 o'clock in the morning, on Wednesday morning, to remind me that I had forgotten a critical message in our previously concluded mountain series. In fact, this message, or this scripture, was the one I wanted to start it all with, and I waited and waited and waited until I forgot. I think I'm developing some timers. But anyhow, why God waited until Wednesday when I was three quarters of the way through and prepping up for our new Valleys series that is coming is beyond me. But you know what? When God speaks, you must listen. Amen. You really don't have a choice. And so today we're going to do a bonus mountain today. We're going to climb a mountain and this mountain by far is the most dangerous of all mountains. And it is called the Mountain of Temptation. And our Sherpa, who knows what a Sherpa is? Okay, a Sherpa is a tour guide from the Himalayans who marches you up the uh, mountains and all that. Our Sherpa is the devil, believe it or not. And um, we're going to climb this mountain. And, but we're going to climb it also with Jesus to see how he successfully traversed the mountain of temptation. We're going to start at Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. And I'll read it for you just real quick. It says, again, everybody say again. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. That's always the refrain. Let's try it again. Ready? This is the word of God for the people of God. You got it. Amen. The again here refers to the two previous temptations in this trinity of temptations that Jesus Christ is facing in Matthew chapter 4. Before we look at the three temptations individually, I want to ask a question, though. Why is Jesus... So temptation worthy. Why is he so temptation worthy? Why is it that the devil wants to take him down, to take him out, to discredit him through temptation? Well, the answer is 40 days previously, John the Baptist had baptized Jesus in the river Jordan. Before he did so, he said he announced to the crowd that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After he fully immersed Jesus into the Jordan and Jesus rose up 
uh, a voice boomed from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, it wasn't only the people around who heard that declaration from God himself or the title that John the Baptist gave to Jesus. It was also hell. This caught hell's attention immediately. And so the devil starts to strategize how it is he's going to take down yet another would-be or so-called humanity, or savior of humanity. Now, you know, everybody else failed, right? You know, whether it was prophet, priest, or king, whether it was anointed leader, whether it was revolutionary, whether it was politician, every single solitary one of them fell into temptation. Every single solitary one of them actually sinned and disqualified themselves from being the savior of the world. So while Jesus is prepping in the wilderness, uh, ready to launch his public ministry, the devil sees an opening. Now, the reason why he saw this opening was, was simply that Jesus was fasting at this point for 40 days. That's without food for 40 days. How many of you can go 40 minutes without food? All right. I struggle, honestly. I cannot imagine. The longest I ever fasted at one time in my life was one week. And believe me, I still don't think I recovered. And that was 30 years ago. But nevertheless, could you imagine, could you imagine fasting for 40 days? So similar to when he tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, the devil loves to tempt us first with the fiery dart of doubt. Doubt. When he went to Eve, he said this, did God really say? Did God really say not to eat of the particular tree? Likewise, he goes to Jesus with another doubt. If, if you are the son of God. In the first case, he wants Eve to doubt the very word of God itself. In the second case, he wants Jesus to doubt his relationship with his father. Nevertheless, the end game for the devil is to get us to doubt two very significant things about God himself. The first is his care or his provision. Does God really care what we struggle with, what we suffer with, what we battle through on this planet? And the second thing he wants us to doubt is God's goodness. Who remembers that famous line, every church chants, right? God is good. What is that? God is good. When? All the time, right? Easy to say at church, harder to live, right? So does God, is God really good in terms of, in terms of withholding something from us that might make us happy? Now, before you think that's an easy answer, if God really wants us to be happy, why does he give us those hundreds of commandments and those laws and those roles and those regulations? Doesn't sound like God is good if he's restricting our pursuit of happiness, right? So the devil is always going to get that into us. Is God going to meet our needs when we need them? And second of all, is God withholding something from our happiness? 
These are two things he's always trying to get us to doubt. Now, this is why temptations are demonically customized to each Christ follower, to each person in the world. We are not really tempted in the same way, are we? We're really not. Your temptations are going to be far different than my temptations and vice versa. The devil is always going to tempt us in areas where we seem a little bit dissatisfied, a little bit, um, a little bit unhappy, or just a little bit miserable. That's what he likes to do. Now let me give you a, a for instance today. Today is my 35th anniversary. I know you got the picture early, okay? But today is my 35th anniversary. People were asking me from the first service, what are you going to do? I said, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to Pizza Hut. I said, what? Yes. Did you know that Pizza Hut strengthens marriages? Did you know that? Because our very first date was at a Pizza Hut, and we have gone 34 straight years to Pizza Hut. No matter where we lived in the country, we always go to Pizza Hut. We, you can come and join us today right after this service. We're going straight to Pizza Hut. But I can tell you, honestly, that in the past 35 years, through the grace and the goodness of God, I have never ever been tempted to either leave my wife or cheat on my wife or divorce my wife. Not once. In fact, never even really thought of it. Ever. Ever. And you say, oh, that's, that's, that's crazy. That's impossible. How is that possible? Well, first of all, I know that if I even thought something like that, she would kill me first of all. So I have a fear for my life on that. But more importantly or more deeply, when God gave me my wife, when I married the love of my life, since I love since the sixth grade, he supremely met all of my marriage needs and my marriage joys in Lisa, far more than I deserved, far more. My wife is a gift of God to me that I would never, ever, 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 ever purposely do anything to spoil. It was like when my uncle, shortly after that picture, when my uh, uncle met us on the other side of the doors after the ceremony, the first thing he did after he hugged us was say, you know you don't deserve her. And I said, I know you're absolutely right. And it's been true for 35 years. But that doesn't mean you need to have a little skill in marriage, because you really do. How many of you think you're very skillful in marriage? So we agreed in our premarital counseling days that we were not going to grind and have conflict over every decision that we ever made. In fact, Lisa would take care of, you know, the, uh, the less important decisions, and I would take care of the bigger decisions. Um, in the 35 years, we've never had a big decision to make. Okay, come on, people, wake up. Help me up here, will you? Now, I just really have never doubted she is God's gift to me. And the marital joy that we've experienced over the past 35 years has been God's blessing to me. And I would never, ever, 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 ever spoil that, no matter how good-looking I really am. I would never, ever try to do that. Ever. Ever. I wouldn't do that. Now, i got to be honest with you. On the other hand, I am daily tempted by sports equipment. <laughs> you show me the latest aero bike, 
or the latest new driver on the market, and my eyes will wa my eyes will water, my mouth will water, and I'm willing to sell my wife, my children, my pets, and everything else in order to obtain that equipment. And so the devil tempts us. The devil tempts us in any area where we're not fully trusting God or where we're least trusting God, where we feel a little bit dissatisfied or a little bit discontented. Be careful because that's exactly when and where he strikes. And because our faith is imperfect and it will be imperfect as long as we're on this side of eternity, we'll always be tempted in particular areas. So if you're fasting for 40 days and now at this point all of your consumable uh, stored fat is gone and now you're actually eating your own body, your own musculature at this point and the devil comes to you and says, I know you got the power, command that these stones be turned into bread. Church, what would be so awful in turning some useless stones into freshly baked, moth-watering, homemade bread layered with peanut butter and jelly? Oh, we're getting close to lunchtime, aren't we? What would be the problem? And besides, which kind of what kind of father would send his kid out and not feed him for 40 days? This seems like a legitimate need, doesn't it? Uh, the clock is ticking. <laughs> if I don't eat something pretty soon, I'm not going to be eating anything at all. But remember Jesus' time in the wilderness was God-ordained and it was Spirit-led. This was a time where his Father and the Spirit were preparing him to launch his public ministry with power and with wisdom and with direction. This was a vital time in Jesus's life. But the core temptation here was for Jesus to go outside of the will of God to get his own needs met. Now, church, I want to admonish you and encourage you today that this is when Christ followers are most vulnerable. They're most vulnerable. And I can just tell you through years of ministry that people who do this, it always ends in a disaster for their lives. So Jesus doesn't bite on this temptation. Jesus doesn't bite on this temptation. <laughs> this is a tough crowd. I'm going to have to call Dr. John there and let him know how tough. Jesus doesn't bite on this temptation. Do you get it? Right? He doesn't, doesn't take the temptation. He doesn't fall for it, right? But instead, he responds with the word of God. Don't miss this. It is written in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 30, that no one lives by bread alone, but by every promise that God makes. Now, don't miss Jesus' sublime tactic here. This is probably the most important thing we have to get this morning. Jesus uses the word of God to erase doubt in God. Don't miss that. 
He uses the word of God to erase doubt in God. Now, why did he do that? Well, the Bible itself is primarily a promise book. Did you know that there is roughly over 6,600 promises that God has made in this book? Now, why is that important? Well, because our souls live on promises. Our souls live on promises. Just like 35 years ago, the promise of a rewarding and enriching life by being in a covenantal relationship with the person you love forever, it really paid off. I live in that promise every day with my wife. We live in that promise every day with God. Our souls are nourished on promises. But as you know, the devil also makes promises, right? And so as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 12, he said that the fight of faith is being able, able to discern, discern and to trust God's promises over the devil's promises. Although Jesus taught us in the model prayer that we just prayed a second ago to ask for our daily bread, and that is a legitimate prayer each and every day, we cannot live on physical sustenance alone. We need soul food. We need spiritual sustenance. And where do we get that spiritual food? One place, people, we get it from the Word of God itself. This is why studies after study, study after study, study after study, study after study has shown that the single greatest catalyst for spiritual growth in the life of the Christian is the simple daily reading of God's Word. Did you hear me, church? At least 15 minutes a day. Why is that? Because our souls, our spirits come alive. They're well-fed and they're nourished when we just read God's Word. This is not just a history book. This is a spiritual book. And the Holy Spirit uses it to feed our souls. We need that strength. We need that stamina. We need that nourishment to be able to fight off temptations. Amen? This is the most effective way to, re to resist temptation. And I can tell you it's not willpower. Everybody who tries to fight off temptation with willpower falls. It is the Word of God. This is why uh, David, King David, in the Old Testament said in Psalm 119.11, Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And why Paul encouraged us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The single greatest ingredient of us being able to avoid and to resist and to endure temptation is the Word of God. But how many of you know that the devil is a pesky little devil? And he will not take no for an answer. And so he comes after Christ and launches another temptation. We see that in verse 6. If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down. Make the leap. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Now this temptation 
is the temptation towards presumption. Presumption. Now, I've heard a lot of definitions about what is presumption. I boil it down to this. The sin of presumption is simply that we insist upon our wants and we call it God's will. You ever do that? Put your hand up if you have done that, right? We think that I will do what I want to do and God will have to bless it. And God will have to bail me out if it goes wrong. But notice how cunning the devil is here. How he fights fire with fire. He uses the word of God to seduce Jesus to go outside the will of God. Thank God Jesus didn't have a fallen ego. If, Jesus, if the devil would have tempted me with that, I would probably be doing backflips off the steeple, crashing to my own death because I, didn't, I wouldn't understand what he was doing to me. But Jesus does. In response, and this is my translation, he quotes Psalm 91, 12, or the devil does, if you are the son of God, do a half gainer with a full twist off the temple spire. God's got your back, and he will rescue you before you go splat. Does that make sense? Didn't we just say a moment ago that God is good, and when is God is good? God's good all the time, right? And if I, you know what? Hey, I, I went out on a limb. I, uh, you know what? I kind of tempted God a little bit. I get that. I know that. You know, I went into that business dealing, really felt like I checked like I shouldn't have. You know, and I lost tons of money. You know, where was God and all that? Well, probably in the sin of presumption. I know of a relative took his entire life savings along with his liquidated pension to get into a scam. And the government got involved and he lost all the money that he ever saved and all the money he ever accumulated on this get-rich-quick scheme. Lost it all. And he got mad at God. Think about that for just a moment. See, a lot of times we act and do what we want and we think it's God's will when we haven't stopped and we haven't prayed and we haven't sought godly counsel and we haven't used good logic, and we haven't used the wisdom of God's word. And then when disaster hits, we wonder, God, where were you? Where were you? Well, Jesus resists this temptation exactly like he did the first one. He does so with the word of God. The devil took that particular psalm out of context. I mean, you know, it's much easier to... Know what the Bible says, not what it means. Well, Jesus know what the Bible means in context. So he resists this temptation through Deuteronomy 6.16. Again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Meaning that whatsoever you do, according to 1 Corinthians 10.31, do it all for the glory of God. Let that be your ultra motivation. And you will be within the will of God, not in the will of self. Amen? Now, we put 
God to the test when we presume that our will, our wants are identical with his. Now, it may be nice to fool Mother Nature, not, not be nice to fool Mother Nature, but it's far worse to tempt God. In fact, there's only one time in all the scriptures where we're encouraged to tempt God. Who remembers where it is? It's in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. God says, tempt me. Bring the full tithe to the storehouse and see that I, if I will not open up the windows of heaven, a blessing upon you. Have we tempted God enough in our giving? It's the only time we're supposed to tempt him. Therefore, let us keep praying the simple, simple prayer of Psalm 1913. Keep your servant from presumptuous sin. Amen? Everybody still here? The nihilistic philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, once said that every person has a bait which he cannot resist swallowing. In our vernacular, we might say that everybody has a price, that everybody's bought and sold. So the devil is banking on the fact that Jesus has a price. So he ratchets up the stakes with this third temptation. His thinking is, Jesus trusts God to care for him. And Jesus won't test God with presumptuous sins. But those are small fries. Small fries compared to what I'm about to offer him. So in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, we read this. He took Jesus to a very high mountain and he soured him with all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And he said, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, what is this temptation here? Well, superficially, it looks like the temptation to worship stuff more than we worship God. And that is a huge temptation. But it's kind of ludicrous, because when you think about it, Colossians 1.17 tells us that Jesus made all the stuff. So would he really be tempted to do a momentary genuflect to the devil to get the stuff back that he already owns? Not really. I don't see that happening. But the deeper temptation that was unique to Christ was to avoid the cross and to still have it all. I mean, that's a big temptation. The very worst way, the most ignominious way to die in Jesus' day was the shame of a Roman cross. That would be hard. If somebody could show me a way around that, I would probably take it. So all he had to do was worship the devil for one second. That's it. That's it. Sell your soul. You can have it all, right? But Jesus responds. I imagine him smiling here and just saying, is that all you got? you got to be joking. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. For it is written, worship the Lord your God only and serve him. Worship the Lord your God only and serve him. Jesus did not worship stuff. Jesus, as we're going to see in a minute in communion, did not avoid the cross 
for convenience. And because he didn't worship the stuff, he answered his own rhetorical question in Mark 8.36. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world, but to lose his soul? Church, what's the profit? Everybody say, none. Did you know that your soul is more valuable each individual soul is more valuable than the entirety of physical creation. That's how valuable it is. And it's not worth trading your soul for the stuff of the world. Jesus didn't do it. And he didn't fall to any of these temptations. He lived out his own prayer. Lead us not into temptation. As Hebrews 4.15 assures us that Jesus was able to overcome each and every one of these temptations and every single one that followed after. And that makes him the unique and the unparalleled savior of humanity. So church, let us remember something. We're going to leave this place today and we're going to be tempted. That's what the devil does. That's in his job description. He wants Nothing more than to have your soul condemned, to have your life destroyed, to have your relationships wrecked because of temptation. But let's do what Jesus did. Let's do what Jesus did. Let us employ the word of God against these temptations and fight each one of them off with this. For if we do, we will be rewarded with an incredible beatitude that we see in James 1.12. I'm going to read it for you. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the rest, has stood the test, and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you now and thank you for the blueprint. Thank you for the strategy. Lord, we know that this world is a test. In fact, every choice is a test. If we're going to trust you, your care and your goodness, or try to get our needs met outside of your plan and your provision for us. And so, Lord God, we, especially as we go to Holy Communion today, we are filled with thanks over the fact that our Lord and Savior never wants to come to temptation. In fact, in his greatest temptation, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he had one more temptation to avoid the cross. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Thank you, Jesus, for staying the course, for learning the obedience through which you had suffered, for providing us a way of escape of temptation. So, Lord, my prayer is today as we go to Holy Communion that you would forgive us for each and every time we have fallen in temptation 
Those times are myriad, they are many, and they are manifold. But Lord God, you forgive us. And the cross is the perfect, the perfect representation of your forgiveness. Christ died while we are yet sinners. That proves your love for us. But God, we don't want to just go from forgiveness to forgiveness. We want to go from forgiveness to the remission of sins. God, we don't only want forgiveness. We want the power to leave our sins so that we might more glorify you and resist whatever the devil throws our way. And so we thank you that this is the table of forgiveness and the table of power, of power. That when we partake of the Holy Sacrament, you are filling us with the power to live a holy and a pure and a God-glorifying life. So we remember this sacrifice. But make it so efficacious in our hearts, in our souls, in our spirits, in our minds, that we resist and rest, resist until your coming day. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you forgive us. And thank you for showing us the way. 